All rise. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Supreme Court of Indiana is now in session. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome. What a beautiful room here, the Ruth Lilly Performance Hall and the Christian DeHaan Fine Arts Center. We are thrilled to be here. I've actually been trying to get to the University of Indianapolis for about three years now, and I don't know what's been holding us up, but uh, we've not been able to. I first wanted to come here. I was invited by Dr. Wilson and her group to the Pre-Law Society for Constitution Day. I was so impressed with the students. I said, we have got to bring the court here. So thank you all uh, for making this happen. I'm Chief Justice Loretta Rush. Um, I've been chief, I'm in my ninth year as Chief Justice, my 11th year on the court. I was a former partner in a law firm in Lafayette, Indiana for 16 years. Then I was a juvenile court judge. I'm a graduate of Richmond High School, Purdue University, and Indiana University. This is only the 49th time the Indiana Supreme Court has traveled outside the State House since 1994. We typically hold oral arguments in the State House, and I think the esteemed um, attorneys before you have argued before us there as well. But we like to go on the road. We want you to see the process firsthand, um, and we're so happy to be here. At this point, I'd like my colleagues to introduce themselves, and we'll do it by order of seniority. Justice Massa. Chief. Good morning. Uh, I'm Mark Massa. I've been a justice on uh, the Indiana Supreme Court for uh, 11 years and nine days. Uh, I grew up uh, in Greendale, Wisconsin, a suburb of Milwaukee, and graduated from high school there, Indiana University as an undergrad, and uh, the Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and spent the bulk of my career uh, as a state and federal prosecutor and a brief time in private practice. Hi, good morning. I'm Jeffrey Slaughter. Uh, I'm a native of Lake County and Crown Point High School. Uh, went to Indiana University Bloomington as an undergrad. Uh, stayed there for graduate school and law school and was appointed to the court in 2016 by then Governor Pence. It's a pleasure to be with all of you this morning. Good morning. My name is Chris Goff. Uh, I'm in my sixth year as an associate justice on the Indiana Supreme Court. Prior to my appointment to the Supreme Court, I served as the uh, Wabash Superior Court judge for 12 years. Uh, prior to that, I was engaged in the general practice of law in Huntington County, Indiana. Uh, I was born in Wabash County. Uh, I attended uh, public schools in Wabash County, I went on to Ball State, and then to IU Maurer School of Law. Very happy to be here today. Good morning. My name is Derek Moulter. Appreciate you having us all here. Uh, I'm the newest member of the court. I joined uh, in the fall of 2022. Uh, before joining the court, I was a judge on the Court of Appeals of Indiana. I'm a native of Newton County and graduated from South Newton High School uh, and then received both my undergraduate and law degrees in Bloomington at Indiana University. Thank you all. So this morning we're here to hear argument in the case of Keller Melowitz, appellant versus Ball State University Board of Trustees and Ball State University and State of Indiana as appellees. The appellant's counsel will argue first. This is a civil transfer case. Transfer has been granted. Representing the plaintiff and appellant here um, is Colin Flora, who will be arguing the case. And with him at counsel table, we have Eric Pavlak. Welcome, gentlemen. Representing Ball State University and the Ball State um, Board of Trustees, we have Brian Paul. Welcome, Mr. Paul. 
and at council table also arguing, we have the um, Solicitor General from the Attorney General's Office, um, Tom Fisher. Welcome, General Fisher. Council, as we've been having cases, um, we'll allow each of you roughly about two minutes before we may start asking questions. Council, you ready to proceed? All right. Mr. Flora. May it please the court, I have reserved six minutes for rebuttal. In Indiana, the power to make procedures for courts is a power shared between the legislative branch and the judicial branch. But it is not, however, a power shared equally. Under both legislative enactment and the inherent power of this court, the final say on rules of procedure in Indiana courts rests in this court and nowhere else, such that a procedural statute in conflict with a rule of this court necessarily yields to a rule of this court. In Budden, this court recognized that one of the privileges our system of justice confers on every citizen is the ability to assert claims in the form of a class action if the requirements of Rule 23 are met. The Supreme Court of the United States has similarly recognized the federal Rule 23, from which Indiana derives its Rule 23, requires federal courts to certify a class in each and every case where the rule's criteria are met. The right to class adjudication is a right that derives entirely from Trial Rule 23. There is no statute or facet of common law that instills the right absent Rule 23. Because both this court in adopting Rule 23 and the United States Supreme Court in drafting Rule 23 may not make substantive law, the Court of Appeals correctly found the class action right created by Rule 23 is a purely procedural right. By prohibiting this purely procedural right to class actions, Section 7 is a procedural statute in conflict with Trial Rule 23 and may not apply to these proceedings. But even if Section 7 were substantive and functionally serving as an immunity provision, by retroactively prohibiting the only effective remedy for 20,000 Ball State students, it constitutes the taking of a vested substantive right and impermissibly impairs the obligations of existing contracts. In Church versus State, this court adopted what I am calling the predominant purpose test for determining substantive versus procedural. In this newly announced test, the court stated, if the statute predominantly furthers judicial administrative objectives, the statute is procedural. But if the statute predominantly furthers public policy objectives involving matters other than the orderly dispatch of judicial business, it is substantive. Mr. Floor, what do you believe the purpose of the statute issue here is? The purpose of the statute issue here is to prohibit the right afforded under Trial Rule 23, is to instruct courts in certain cases. Do you think it's fair to say that the, the purpose is to limit the, 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 what, what might be vast liability of colleges and universities that uh, had to shut down by virtue of the governor's order during, during COVID? Your Honor, I think that functionally it is trying to do that by erecting an immunity. But that is not what it is doing, at least in theory. In theory, what the statute purports to do is allow the claims that already belong to all of the Ball State students to still be advanced. It's not overtly removing their claims. Well, but if, if, if the legislature had actually used the words that you've just described, conferred an immunity from suit on colleges, universities, and others, would that be a substantive uh, law that would, uh, would be permissible? It would be a substantive law that would not be, violate the, the dichotomy of substantive versus procedural, but it would necessarily be a taking of an accrued right. So, so here, why is this not a, a species of partial immunity? 
Well, Your Honor, I, I agree that it is perhaps a species of partial immunity if it affects that, that purpose, in which case it's a takings under the Fifth Amendment and under the Indiana Constitution. That was found in Florida. That is exactly what the Florida legislature tried, was to make a retroactive immunity provision. And the Freddie case from the Southern District of Florida said that is a point-blank takings in a violation of the Fifth Amendment. I'm looking at the Baylor case down in Texas where they didn't, they, it wasn't like a partial, it was like no COVID lawsuits against educational um, institutions. And that was upheld in that cause. Do you think, we have, we have numerous statutes that our general legislature has done and actually Ball State in their uh, uh, petition before the Court of Appeals listed numerous states that have limited class actions. Is it your position that the General Assembly can never impose any limitations on class actions? It is our position that the stat, well, so starting with the statutes in Indiana that were cited, with one exception, each of those is not a true limitation on class actions. What it was was a limitation on the ability to join a class action without first exhausting Put, put extra class. requirements on it. But your position, if you would take it uh, to the next level, your position is that the legislature cannot do away with class actions in any circumstances the without, without violating the procedure versus substance dichotomy between rules and statutes. To the extent that a legislature may do that, it may do it when conferring a right under a, a, a uh, excuse me, a substantive right under a statute. Here we have common law rights that have not been conferred, do not come from the legislature, but are simultaneously being withdrawn by the legislature. But wasn't this sort of a balancing and looking, when I look at the statutes around the country that the different legislatures did in line with dealing with COVID and potential liability, a lot of them just did full nuclear, right? They said, you can never bring any kind of lawsuits. There seemed to be some balancing that went on with the general legislature. Listen, there's plaintiff's rights here with regard to people being able to cover on, recover under contract um, and unjust enrichment. Why, why shouldn't we defer to the legislature with the kind of balancing they did here? Because as opposed Honor, to doing something more drastic, which would really would affect your client even more. Because, Your Honor, it, it starts from the separation of powers between the legislature and this court, such that this court is the sole source or the, the final decider of rules of procedure. So if what the statute is doing is fundamentally procedural, then it, it can't abridge a rule of this court. Because the, the right to class actions comes entirely from Trial Rule 23, either Trial Rule 23 has granted a substantive right, which this court can't do and the Supreme Court of the United States can't do, so we submit is not what it did, or it is a purely procedural right. If the legislature is taking, uh, enacting a statute that says, under these circumstances, you cannot use a procedural right, we have nothing in our case law, no precedent, in which the legislature has taken a, a purely procedural right away and it has been upheld. But haven't courts been, been struggling with this issue? Even the Shady Grove, you've got Scalia on one hand and Ginsburg that both make well-reasoned um, <clears throat> decisions and opinions saying that, you know, Scalia says purely procedural, Ginsburg said no. This, this, this issue between um, class actions, federal, that was a federal rule, but a lot of the arguments could be the same, and um, state law. So there, there is, there's not a, it's not as clean. It's not like, it's, it's not as bright line. If it's not as bright line as you want us, back it up a little bit and what else could it look like? Well, Your Honor, Justice Scalia, which at least in parts one and two A of the Shady Grove opinion is a majority opinion, did draw that bright line and, and easily found a bright line. That when there is a conflict, as there is here, I, I think we can all agree that the, or at least the Court of Appeals agreed, 
a may versus a may not is as bright a conflict as there can be. Of course, so, the Supreme Court is interpreting the Rules Enabling Act. Is that, do you believe that to be the same kind of statute that's, that's at issue here that, that dictates the result? I don't know that I'd say it's the exact same kind of statute. It, it, the Rules Enabling Act of the Supreme Court of the United States does mirror what we have in uh, Article 34-8, with the authority being granted from the legislature. Let me ask the question a little differently. What, what do you believe the source to be of our authority to promulgate rules? Is it a matter of legislative grace, or do we have that independent authority under Article 7? Yes, this court in Epstein versus State says that there is a matter of legislative grace that is an acknowledgment of it, but the right of this court to control its rules of procedure derive from its inherent power. So it is the power under Article 7 of the court to oversee the judicial process that is the source of that right. While the case law of this court so far has seemed to interpret both the statute and the constitutional right as concomitant, they are two separate channels. So to the extent that, for example, 34.813 dictates that the court can enact a rule of practice or procedure, and then sub separately in a separate sentence says, any statute that is in conflict with the rule of procedure, it shall no longer be in effect. Because 34.813 does purport to ban any conflict, there may be a separate channel under the statute for invalidating a statute. And then, then you've got, like I said, a, a, entirely different analysis, perhaps, than the constitutional analysis. Hey, good morning, Mr. Flora. I, uh, I did not fully join in our church opinion, although I got to the same result. And um, it, it, when I look at this issue, uh, regardless of whether the statute is substantive or procedural, we were, as a state, confronted with a situation that was certainly unprecedented in our lifetime. And, it occurs to me that the state was taking some measures to try to ensure that critical functions of government, providing education, could remain uh, relatively unimpeded, at least could continue in some bare-bones fashion. And with that in mind, why would we step in this lane in this particular situation? In, in other words, even if the legislature says, yeah, this is a procedural issue that we're going to need to wade into. Uh, we were doing the same thing. Uh, we were greatly uh, minimizing the practices in, in our trial courts. Why doesn't this just comport with the policy that we were putting forward as a judicial branch and, you know, kind of my reasoning in church? This is a conflict. It's a, it is procedural, but we're not going to wade into it because it's consistent with something that we've advanced. What's wrong with that? Well, to be clear, Your Honor, we're not contesting the shutting down of the campus. What we're contesting is the essentially retroactive writing into their contracts of a force majeure provision that is shifting the risk of non-performance to the students instead of to the university. The shutting down of the campus, as ordered by the governor, we don't contest that. We're not going to be making a claim for specific performance under the contract or even a claim for expectation damages. What we are asserting, as recognized by the Court of Appeals and Indiana University Trustees versus Spiegel as a meritorious claim, is that our, the students of Ball State have paid certain fees and, and costs for in-person tuition, and as a result of the campus shutting down, the performance of those services was not provided. So they're looking for a partial refund of what they, they offered. The statute at issue here was not trying to protect the health and well-being of the students or telling the students that they have to go home. 
The statute now is trying to say, you students who otherwise under contract law would be entitled to these refunds, we're not going to give you a viable mechanism to recover your money. Because in this circumstance, the government, the state of Indiana, has decided both it and institutions primarily run by it should be shielded from this liability. Why is there no viable uh, route to recovery? Your client can still sue in an individual capacity. Well, Your Honor, the purpose of a class action is, as recognized by this court in Budden, is to provide a remedy where often the claims are too small to even viably gain counsel. As, indicate, as shown in this case, the defense of Ball State is vigorous. If the amount at issue is at most a few thousand dollars, the court and the, the legislature have had to create small claims courts to even allow such cases to go forward at all because it's not viable for, for counsel to be retained, not viable for most litigants to put it forward. They cannot engage in the discovery process in small claims or make the, the kind of arguments that have had to be made all the way through the Court of Appeals and Spiegel. All right, before you sit down, um, let's just briefly explore retroactivity. If we do find the statute to be substantive and not procedural, what's your best argument on its retroactive application? So uh, starting with the takings provision, by the filing of the class action complaint itself, under the, the guidance of church, we believe that triggered the right to certify to, uh, Mr. Melowitz's class action rights. It was not a, a need to file a motion for class certification because under Indiana law, the filing of the complaint triggers class action obligations, triggers the duty of the court to hold a hearing and make a ruling, triggers fiduciary duties by the putative class rep to the, the absent class members, triggers discovery rights, so much so that the actual remedy that Ball State sought here was to force the filing of an amended complaint to strip out those class allegations, to remove those, those attending obligations. As it pertains to the, the taking or the, the application to contract, once the contract came into effect at the start of the spring 2020 semester, any retroactive application or any application on that existing contract rights is a violation of the contract clauses, both of the federal and state constitutions. Mr. Florin, the, 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 the statute does not prevent joinder of plaintiffs. Um, if, if we affirm the trial court's judgment against you, is, is, that, an, is that not a practical uh, approach for, for your client, Mr. Melowitz, and others similarly situated simply to join as plaintiffs? Uh, your Honor, I, I will first note that I am out of time, but uh, with your Chief's blessing. Just into your rebuttal time. Thank you. Uh, your Honor, under Trial Rule 23A1, the concept of numerosity, it is presupposed that joinder is impracticable. And the case law on, on numerosity generally recognizes that at 40 plaintiffs, or joinder is impracticable. So a, a case involving 20,000 plaintiffs, I can scarcely imagine the logistics of handling. I have a case right now with about 300 plaintiffs, and it is absolutely impossible to handle to begin with. Thank you, counsel. We'll Thank you, again on rebuttal. Mr. Paul. May it please the court. Under Church, the controlling inquiry is this. What is the statute's predominant objective? Does it merely seek to regulate the day-to-day -day procedural operation of the courts, or does it seek to do more than that by furthering a policy goal? As in Church, it's quite clearly the latter here. 
In response to a once-in-a-century pandemic, the governor ordered Hoosiers to stay home, forcing schools in an instant, as one judge has put it, to juggle health, safety, students' education, liability, and legal compliance, all while blindfolded. The situation was unprecedented, yet the schools provided the education students had paid for and then some, and still the schools have been sued. Worse, they face the prospect of having to defend against plaintiffs seeking to represent tens of thousands of other students who not only received credit for the courses they completed, but who have never taken a single step to join this lawsuit, let alone file their own. As this court recognized 25 years ago in the Hefty case, class actions differ from ordinary lawsuits in that the lawyers for the class are close to being the real parties in interest. This fundamental departure from the traditional pattern of litigation generates a host of problems. Undoubtedly aware of this host of problems and recognizing the school's plight, the legislature sought to balance the competing interests and rights of the schools and their students, concluding that in its policy judgment, while students who have asserted claims should still be permitted to pursue them, the schools should not have to defend themselves while also facing the sky-high costs and extraordinary pressures to settle that lawyer-driven class action brings. This is, after all, simply how litigation is ordinarily conducted, plaintiff by plaintiff and case by case. With that, I welcome your questions. I'm trying to figure out the legal basis for your argument. I'm assuming that there is no statute that's enacted that doesn't have some policy reason, correct? I think that's generally All correct. Right. So you're asking, and is it our role then to say, okay, this is a good, a really good policy? You're asking us to weigh out policy and say, okay, on balance, you're asking us to, to, to do something that, that courts may not be in the best position to do. I'm not asking you to weigh whether it's a good policy. I'm asking you to determine whether the predominant objective is policy-oriented. But you're also asking us, you said that the legislature had substantial, had significant, and that not that sort of the same test? The question that controls under church is what is the predominant objective of the statute? If it's policy-oriented, then it is considered substantive. If it is purely procedural, if it simply governs the day-to-day -day procedural business of the courts, it is procedural, and then we proceed to the next step, which you is the conflicts Mr. analysis. answer to my question, what's the purpose of the statute? How, the, how, do, how do you answer the question? The purpose of the statute principally is to address the host of problems that are alluded to in the hefty decision with class action litigation, which is sky-high costs of, of, of litigating class actions. It can easily cost a million dollars or more to defend a, a class action just through the class certification stage and to uh, relieve uh, these sorts of defendants from the excessive pressures to settle that, that class actions bring. You, you two have given very different answers to my question, what's the purpose of the statute? The statute itself doesn't tell us what the purpose is. So how do we infer or how do we discern that purpose given the legislature's silence in actually telling us what its purpose is? A, a few things, and I, and I draw this directly from the church decision. One, what does the law say? Two, what is the structure of the law? Three. What do we know about what else the legislature did during the same session? We know that it passed two other class action bars with respect to COVID-19 litigation. 
And four, what is our experience? What is our public knowledge about the subject matter of the, of the, of the bill? In footnote three of Church, the court cited a US Supreme Court decision in some academic literature on the effect of having to testify in court against one's abuser. We, in the same way, we can take into account what we know about class action litigation. We know that they uh, do cost a tremendous amount and that they do uh, create these excessive pressures to settle based on Supreme Court precedent, Seventh Circuit precedent, academic literature, and so forth. And all of that has to be considered against the backdrop of we resolve all reasonable doubts in favor of the constitutionality of our statutes. It's a very serious thing to strike down a, a piece of legislation, and uh, it should rarely be done. Counsel, I have a question about that very point, and the amici also make the same point you do about the presumption of constitutionality. That presumption makes sense to me uh, as, as a matter of recognizing the separation of powers when the legislature is exercising its police powers. But it's not obvious to me why that presumption makes sense when you have a separation of powers question. If the question is whether or not the legislature has encroached on the executive or the judiciary, why would there be a presumption that the legislature prevails? Well, <clears throat> I think that presumption applies most directly if you get to the constitutional analysis, which is the, the takings issue and the contracts issue. The, the predominant, as I understand, Church, the, the purpose of the predominant objective test is to determine whether the legislature is exercising its exclusive authority to make law, to make public policy, as opposed to its shared authority with the judiciary to promulgate rules. So that part is not um, intended necessarily to be a limitation on legislative power, but rather is in an effort to determine exactly the sort of animal that we're dealing with. And so the, to, to, again, to, to answer directly your question, the presumption of constitutionality comes into play both when we're dealing with the conflicts analysis, if we get that far, and when we're dealing with the constitutional questions. And, and I should say that the, 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 the predominant objective test, as I understand it, is not necessarily designed to put guardrails around what the legislature does. It's just designed to tell us what, what the legislature is doing. Is it exercising that exclusive authority to make law? The real guardrails are the provisions of the Constitution, like the Takings Clause, the Contracts Clause, due process. Those things uh, uh, provide the ultimate guardrails. They don't happen to be violated here, but those are the ultimate guardrails of the legislature, legislature's authority. What, what, what result under church if we conclude a statute is neither predominantly um, policymaking or predominantly um, uh, trying to direct how litigation is going to be conducted, but is right down the middle. It's 50-50. There's no predominance either way. What, what, what happens then? <laughs> I confess I haven't thought of the, the answer to that particular question. Um, it seems to me uh, that given the general presumption that the law should be enforced as the legislature hasn't acted, uh, that the, the law should generally, we should generally look for a way to enforce the law. And whether that's through the, the substantive uh, uh, predominant objective test or whether we do that through the conflicts analysis or whether we employ the presumption in viewing the takings and contracts uh, uh, questions, the, 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 the overarching theory should be this legis the legislature has acted lawfully within its scope of authority. 
Council, one of your alternative arguments is that we should acquiesce. This follows on uh, the line of inquiry Justice Goff was engaging in. Uh, you know, both sides disagree about whether we could acquiesce, but neither side proposes any sort of framework for considering when we should exercise that discretion. And that's not a criticism. Our case law doesn't provide that kind of framework or analysis either. Do you have any thoughts on how we should go about exercising that discretion uh, when we should be acquiescing? Well, I don't think that you have to get to that question in this particular case because the law is substantive under the controlling test. But were you to get to the analysis, I, I take it you're talking about the analysis that Justice Goff applied in the church decision. And I think that, again, employing the presumption of enforceability generally should lead you to recognize that the General Assembly is in the business of, and its exclusive authority is, to enact law that sets the policy of the state. And so if it is at all plausible that the legislature is in fact doing that, it seems to me that the best course is to defer to the legislature and uphold the law. Counsel, I want to read the, the, the opening uh, uh, stanza of Rule 23. Um, One or more members of a class may sue or be sued as representative parties on behalf of all only if, and then it lists the four, prerequisites, whether they be substantive or procedural, um, in exercising its uh, policy-making authority, could the General Assembly decide that class action lawsuits are, are just too onerous and too big a burden on our state's economy and ban them completely in the face of, of Rule 23? You'll forgive me for not giving you a yes or no answer. And the reason I can't give you a yes or no answer is because the church test is highly context specific. It depends on what the law says, its structure. And we have to know something about the history that led to the law. So we have to have an actual piece of legislation in front of us. This is a case by case analysis. And I can't say without context and only in the abstract uh, whether the legislature could in fact do that. But it's your view that they can curtail it in <coughs> certain circumstances as they have Correct. Here. Correct. And, and, and here it's, it's rather easy because we know not only what the law says and its structure, but the, the history that led up to the passage of the law is very readily apparent to us. The governor issued these stay-at-home orders. The schools complied. They bent over backwards to provide an education. The students took credit and still they were sued. Uh, well, well let's, let's talk about that, because you know, they, they made the point, the, the students were sent home, there were services they didn't get, Ball State, according in their brief, got $77.5 million, students' tuition was the same, there was nothing, no credit on that. So even the judge in the Baylor case that found for the state said, this isn't fair. Well, <clears throat> the legislature could reasonably view it otherwise, given the unique circumstances all of these circumstances that are well known not only to, to you and me, but to the legislature. These schools uh, had to do something in an instant that they had never done before, and that is to go completely online. They soldiered on, they provided the education that these students had paid for, and, and still they are being sued. And the legislature under these unique circumstances could reasonably think that the schools are entitled to some relief. While the students may pursue their claims, the schools should not have to defend those claims while also facing the costs and pressures to settle that class action litigation brings. If you're right about the church case, that is the test is highly fact specific, it's highly contextual, um, should we consider a different test? Is there a better black, line, black letter rule, for example, that we should embrace in lieu of church? No. <clears throat> I think church is the appropriate test for a couple of reasons. One, uh, 
it builds on, as it says, and is consistent with existing precedent. And as the court noted, it has repeatedly upheld statutes over competing trial rules when the statutes express public policy objectives. And secondly, in my view, the church test shows an appropriate respect for the separation of powers. As uh, the church case notes quite prominently, all of the legislature, all of the legi legislative power, all of the power to make the law resides in the General Assembly. And the church test is a thoughtful test, as it says, in my view, for sussing out whether the legislature is in fact exercising that exclusive authority or whether it's doing something else, and that is exercising the shared authority to promulgate rules with the judiciary. If I may, I would like to uh, turn the podium over to the general. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Paul. General Fisher. Thank you, Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Um, Justice Moulter, I think as to your question about why we should in, engage in the presumption here, I think it's precisely because of what Church is trying to do, which is trying to head off conflict between the branches. I think it's uh, an effort to put the court essentially in the same position it is oftentimes with respect to constitutional questions, which is asking, is there something that, that, uh, that is valid that the legislature was trying to do here so that we don't have this interbranch tension that another rule might uh, uh, produce? So I think that that's the reason to con you know, go ahead and, and apply a, a presumption here just as in any other context. Um, uh, Justice Slaughter, on equipoise, I think for that very reason, I think when there's equipoise, I think the presumption, the, the tie, if you will, goes to the legislature on this sort of thing. I mean, there is a, uh, a, a, a panoply a, 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 of, 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 of you know, policy considerations that the legislature considers with every uh, statute such as this. And, you know, as long as I think the uh, what I get from church, as long as there is a sort of plausible policy choice being made, that and is... Who decides if it's a plausible policy choice? And that's where I'm struggling. You're asking us to sort of look behind the curtain on the legislature on why mm. they did it, as opposed to the direct language. Because you would agree that there are um, procedural elements to the statute. It, it, it restricts the method in which somebody can bring a lawsuit. Well, sure, but that's not the question. The question is, is there a rationale that's substantive and that's, that, that basically... Is there a rationale that's substantive, but doesn't that require us to look behind the words of the statute as to the why? No. And where do we go for that information? We go to the, take judicial notice of the executive orders? What do we use? No, I don't think this is any different from any other constitutional inquiry. I mean, the, the court is often confronted with asking questions about what objective is being attained by legislation. Uh, the court, you know, uses its common sense, of course, and it listens to the advocates. And in a, you know, some scenarios, that if there is heightened scrutiny that, that's required, uh, there might be a, an evidentiary showing. I don't there were two cases that looked at this um, that, that had this, and I didn't find any other ones other than looking at the lines that maybe quoted um, Shady Grove. And they said no, that this substantive law with regard to limited class action butts up against um, 23, therefore it's not valid. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a different test entirely. And here I think we understand from a whole variety of sources what the public policy implications of class actions are. I think the, you know, the Indiana Legal Foundation gives, a, I think, a nice overview in its amicus brief about what it is that businesses run up against uh, when they're confronted with class actions. Uh, and, and indeed, I, you know, the, the question was put to Mr. Paul about whether the legislature could do a 
away with all class actions. And I think given the history of what we know about class actions and the class actions abuses, even if class actions originated as a means of attaining judicial efficiency, there was a pretty compelling case to be made that the legislature could do away with all class actions on this policy ground. There is a really profound choice being made between the, the right to avoid settlement pressure, the, the uh, just the, the bet the company kind of mentality that, that a, a defendant winds up in in a class action case, can the legislature say we're going to put that aside, put those pressures aside, and require cases to be litigated on their merits? Because that's the problem with class actions. They drive settlements regardless of merits purely to keep the dollar exposure down. And to that's be clear, you're not asking us to weigh the, the uh, wisdom or value of, the, uh, of, the, of that public policy decision, right? You're asking us to determine whether there was a public policy purpose. That's exactly right. And I think what we know from uh, the uh, state and the nation's experiences with class actions is that there is abundant public policy purposes behind this statute. But isn't there, name a statute that there's not a public policy purpose behind. Well, I, you know, the, the uh, it, it's hard to imagine, I, I, okay, I admit. So we've but we've got one. It's, I, I think that the, the church test is meant to avoid the, the kind of conflict that anything that's more aggressive would entail. You know, and I think the, the proposal that we get from the other side tends to revolve around does it affect procedures procedural happenings, which of course can't be right because then the church itself would have come out the other way, as would so many other precedents, including venue changes and stays and everything else. So if the General Assembly said you have to take a deposition within 10 days of filing your lawsuit, <laughs> yeah. that would be procedural and it would conflict with our trial rules. Yes, it's, it's without more, it's hard to say otherwise, although I, you know, I, I can't uh, foreclose the possibility that maybe there's a public policy per reason there, but that's why I think the court's common sense and its awareness of what's going on in, uh, you know, uh, in the world is, is important here. You're not required to set that aside and defer to everything. It's a matter of just assessing, you know, is there a plausible substantive explanation? Well, and following on, along with uh, that example, isn't that what the anti-slap anti statute does? I mean, it's, its purpose is to protect speech rights, but it does it through procedural means. So it, yeah. it um, you know, requires summary judgment, uh, a motion to dismiss be treated as summary judgment and then places uh, time limits. Yes, I think it's an ex excellent example. There are, you know, the legislature is aware of the experience of litigation and what is happening and the consequences of how different litigation strategies play out. It can assess the impact of that on society and make changes geared towards uh, what are, you know, the interests of, of the, uh, that it prefers versus the interests that are maybe being benefited so, by the so court when you look at the analysis in Shady Grove, you are closer aligned to Justice Ginsburg than Justice Scalia's. Um, okay, great. It's terrific. <laughs> Justice Ginsburg is, on procedural issues, Justice Ginsburg, I think, uh, has no peer. So I'm very comfortable with that. As to this, uh, question is whether or not the General Assembly could do away with class actions in their entirety. Let's say that we were concerned that that might happen uh, because it might limit access to the courts by people that wouldn't otherwise have it. And that counseled in favor of us resolving this case um, closer to the way I would have looked at church. Can, can you expand a little bit your view as to Justice Moulter's question on what we should look at if we were determining whether or not to acquiesce to the General Assembly uh, when we found that the statute was in fact procedural? 
Well, I think the challenge there is not to put the court in the position of deciding whether it agrees with the policy adopted by the General Assembly. And if, if we're going to entertain that sort of acquiescence test uh, and maintain the uh, legislature's role in creating policy, I think we wind up right back where we are, uh, just asking about predominant purpose and applying the usual presumptions. Otherwise, I'm very concerned the court gets in the position of, uh, of saying, is this a serious enough issue? And I, I don't think that's where the court really wants to be. Uh, there's nothing further. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Flora, rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Beginning with Justice Moulter's question about the presumptions, I, I think this is where we have to look at where does the right come from? Because in this case, the presumption actually should be in favor of defending trial rule 23, same presumption the Supreme Court of the United States used in Burlington Northern Railway. That's because in this instance, the right to class action is given by the judicial branch, a co-equal branch to the legislature. The traditional presumptions of enforceability are because you are trying to protect a statute from intrusion by the judicial branch, one branch onto the other. Here, the right began with this branch, and it is the legislature that is then stepping into this branch's powers. So the, the presumption should start that this court, just like the Supreme Court of the United States, cannot enact substantive laws. That is clear. So the presumption needs to be that the rule is procedural. Neither blood nor church dealt with a statute or dealt with a, a rule, a law, that was procedural and then was being taken away. The right in church was determined to be the substantive right to take criminal depositions. The right in blood and its progeny was the substantive right that could only be given by the legislature of the right to change of venue from judge or county. Indeed, it merits note that the federal rules do not have a corresponding rule to Rule 76. In fact, Trial Rule 76 doesn't even purport to grant the right. It says in, in civil cases where the right to change county or judge is allowed. So in this case, I think the presumption needs to be the right conferred by Trial Rule 23. The tie, that is the tie goes to the runner. To Justice Slaughter's point about should the test in church be revisited? Well, a point needs to be clarified, I think, by the court about exactly what the test is in church. And the reason for that is right before announcing the test, the court cites to the McDougall case from Michigan. As I read McDougall, it is a different test than this court has adopted. But if, if the state and Ball State are correct that essentially the test from McDougall, which is if a particular court rule contravenes a legislatively declared principle of public policy, having at, at its basis something other than court administration, the court rule should yield. In that test, if there is a public policy at all that can be assessed from the statute, then the rule must yield. As Chief Justice Rush has accurately noted, it is the legislature that makes public policy in, it, in its laws. Every statute can be argued to be some degree of public policy. If that is in fact the test, then the long history of cases, even the recent cases this court has decided need to be revisited. In the matter of MS, where the court decided that trial rule 53.5's allowance for courts to continue trials conflicted with and superseded the Chin's requirement for decisions within 120 days would not seem to stand. There's certainly a public policy reason for having the 120-day determination. Same thing with the court's decision in Holtzclaw, which required a certain period of time in which to pursue uh, criminal appeals as in deemed to be conflicting with trial rule or appellate rule 9. So in each of those instances, if the test is, as the state seems to be um, arguing, that any public policy is enough, 
then, then yes, the test in church needs to be revisited. But that's not how I read the court's adoption of the test in church, and particularly because the court sided to the McKenna case from Colorado in announcing the test. The test, as stated in church, is, as far as substance, if the statute predominantly furthers public policy objectives involving matters other than the orderly dispatch of judicial business. That test, taken from McKenna, is a quote directly from Professors Joyner and Miller's paper. In their paper where they authored that test, they specifically instructed that class actions are matters of judicial procedure and involve the how instead of the what. Court rules should cover these matters. That's consistent with this court's case law throughout the history of this state. So if church versus state has thrown that asunder, then yes, I think it should be revisited. Revisited in favor of what? I would say in favor of the, the test that was announced in blood, where I think the problem in blood has not actually been its test. It's been the, that for 60 years, courts have looked at the wrong portion. The courts have looked to what I call the illustrative list, the as a general law, uh, general rule laws which fix duties. The actual test is the quoted portion from Dean Gavitt, that substantive law can be defined as including that body of rules which regulates the conduct and relationship of members of society and the state itself as among themselves apart from the field of litigation. Procedural law can be defined as that body of law regulating the conduct and relationship of individuals, courts and officers in the course of judicial litigation. And that's consistent with the Chauvin case from Kentucky where they say that um, privileges are substantive at least to the degree they apply outside of the course of litigation. The course of litigation is where I would draw the line and where the state had. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Counsel, um, just well-briefed, well-argued case today. Thank you very much. And students and teachers, you got to see some just excellent lawyering go on. So we appreciate, appreciate that. We will be discussing the case.